Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And today we are talking about the doctrine of salvation. Uh, We are in Systematic Theology 2, and we are beginning this important doctrine. It is a massive uh, topic and one that we would say sits right at the heart of the Christian faith. And so the better that we can understand this topic, uh, the deeper understanding will be of the gospel. And of course, the deeper our understanding of the gospel, then the deeper and or higher our worship will be of the person of God. So like every other aspect of uh, theology and all other doctrines, uh, theology is interconnected. Um, And so the better that, that you can grasp everything that we've talked about so far and all of those other points of theology the fuller your grasp will be of soteriology uh this is a very rich doctrine it's a nuanced doctrine it's one that requires some careful thought and like much of theology there are aspects that must be understood if you're to truly be a christian and so uh like much of theology uh there's many debated aspects to this topic Uh, There's going to be parts that we would say must be rightly believed if you're to be orthodox and therefore um, a true Christian. Uh, But there are also parts that many good thinkers and godly people, uh, quite frankly, will just disagree over. And so as we go along here, we're going to do our best to be dogmatic where we must and then be charitable where we ought. All right. So with that said, um, it's very important, first of all, to start out by having you understand that it's important that you not read New Testament concepts backward into the Old Testament. Um, You really shouldn't do it even to New Testament passages. Just deal with them within their own context. Uh, But a case in point is that the idea of salvation is not merely related to salvation from sin, yet that's almost always what you hear. Uh, nor is it limited only to the idea of being justified. Uh, Rather, it's a very broad, uh, full, and multicolored, or as you said before, nuanced uh, concept. Uh, The bulk of the Old Testament focuses on a physical deliverance, not a spiritual one, from enemies and oppressors such as uh, Exodus 15.2 or Psalm 18, verse 4 and following. But there are also some other meanings as well. But a good example to see that would be in Isaiah 52, uh, verses 1 through 10. Uh, The reason this is a good one is that it's referred to in part in Romans 10, verse 15. And as a result, there's often an assumption that Isaiah was referring to, quote, unquote, getting saved. Right, right. right. Uh, And so that you're getting saved from sin. Uh, This idea, however, is actually extremely uh, truncated and actually uh, fails to see the fullness of what salvation involves and certainly what the salvation that Paul had in mind. Yeah. And so in Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. 
And so here, salvation is actually viewed in its fullest sense as the declaration that God reigns. Uh, note the flow in the verse. Um, the peace referred to here is that word shalom. It refers to the day when God will bring all things back under his reign and rule. And it was on be on that day that the righteous are finally vindicated, which carries another aspect of the idea of justification. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and what's fascinating about, about this text is how it, it uses terms that we're actually very familiar with. Yeah. Um, so you have, you know, he who announces or or evangelizes is the term. He who announces peace and brings good news, again, evangelize, brings good news of happiness. Uh, of course, you see the term there of salvation. And so uh, salvation in, in this passage is, is well throughout the Bible is, is actually far greater and fuller than merely that battle with sin and death. And that's very important to understand. We tend to think of salvation in, in emotion uh, sort of way. Uh, we see it as something from which we came, usually sin and death. And and while that's correct to a certain degree, the Bible more forcefully describes it as something that we and, and all of creation are moving toward. So you're saying that we tend to look backward. Yeah, I was saved from my sin. Yeah. Yeah. And, and but the Bible is actually looking more forward. Yeah, you're going to be saved to something. Exactly. Which yeah. is kind of cool. And also for listeners should make them stop and say, well, how do I think of it? Because that's a good point. Yeah. So a simple example of this is seen in, in just listen to these passages. And again, notice the forward flow. There's a, a timeline here. So Ephesians 2, 8, uh, that famous passage, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And there it's uh, past tense, essentially. Uh, but then you get the first Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is, to those who are perishing folly, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So now there's this present tense right. aspect to right. salvation. Then 1 Corinthians 3.15, if a man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through a fire. So now we there's a future right. component to this. Um, and then Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, and notice the time for the day of redemption. Now we're talking about ultimate that, glory. Yeah, the ultimate. Yeah. Which is interesting because most people will quote Ephesians 2.8 because they know it so well. And I think that's partly why they think backwards. Um, but the same book, Ephesians, he ultimately is driving you to that day when all things are summed up in in the Lord. Yeah, so yeah. Um, so we, we see that salvation is found in the truth that God has come and, of course, accomplished that necessary work to make all things right again, um, through, you know, through the death, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those great enemies have been conquered. Uh, those enemies, as we know, are sin and Satan and death. Um, but this process of salvation is is still being worked out, and that's the, the point to understand. It's being worked out in various ways uh, and involves many concepts, um, all of which hinge or are part of that greater sphere of of the kingdom of God. Right. Um, and so ultimately we're going to say here that salvation is something that's eschatological. That is, it looks to the future or the end of the old and then the fullness of the new. Yes. Okay. So with that, as our basic introduction, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to start out with some of the lexical terms um, so that we understand that there's various words that are used and 
at the better that you appreciate that, then the better that you can read your Bible. So um, the ones that we're going to deal with right now are out of the Old Testament, and the uh, explanations will be the result of the theological word book of the Old Testament. So you have the Yasa uh, word group. Uh, this term will carry the basic mean of making wide, uh, which doesn't help a lot. <laughs> um, the idea is that it's being made that being made narrow is restrictive and causes distress, whereas being made wide indicates freedom from distress because you've been liberated. And once you see that, you're like, oh, okay. Um, anyone who ever got stuck, yeah, you know, and then somebody opened up the door that you were stuck between or something, you're like, yeah, yeah, I like being made wide. Um, well, that's the idea. The way out of distress or narrowness requires deliverance. And so the person or thing that brings deliverance is the savior or the deliverer. Uh, in fact, the name of Jesus is based upon this very word. Right. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's a compound word that means Yahweh delivers. For the Jew, therefore, there was much truth built into his very name. Yeah. It's also the name of Joshua. Yes. Uh, who brought the people into the promised land. Um, and then after that, you have the Natsol word group. Um, this word carries the idea of, of deliverance or actually being snatched away. You'll see this Exodus 3.22, Judges 6.9. Um, and so this word is, it's very broad and involves a personal deliverance. Many of the events that are, are physical in nature, um, you know, so like the, the cries of David in the Psalms, for instance. Well, uh, or Exodus. <laughs> well, yeah, that'd be a good one. Uh, they're also going to carry those spiritual aspects as right. well. Um, so it's not, not just physical, it's also pointing to something greater. But again, in the Old Testament, primarily the immediate context is something physical. Right. Uh, and then there's another word group. Uh, it's called the Malat or Palat. Uh, word group. Uh, these words in their verbal form are only found in the Old Testament poetry, which I find interesting. Um, Malat uh, carries the idea of slipping away, and it's used of being, again, delivered in Job 41 and Psalm 22, verse 6. Um, palat means to escape or to be made safe. So in 2 Samuel 2, 22, 44 and Psalm 18, 3. So uh, slipping away or being made safe. Yeah. Uh, then the next, you have the Ga'al or Pada word group. Um, and it's a, this is a good word group because it speaks of redemption. Uh, so you have, for instance, Ga'al, this first one. Uh, the primary meaning here of this root is to do the part of a kinsman. Uh, so it's the idea of of a relative redeeming his kin from difficulty or danger. Um, and you're talking about Ruth. Yeah. Um, uh, well, Boaz, technically yeah. Boaz, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. He's, he's the gall. Um, so the, the root for, uh, it's used in four basic situations, um, covering everything from a good and what a true and good man would do for his kinsmen. So first you see it being used to refer to the purchase of a field, which was sold in time of need, Leviticus 25, 25. Uh, along with that, it carries a sense of freeing an Israelite slave who would have actually sold himself into poverty. You see that Leviticus 25, 48. Uh, in fact, the, the purchase and restitution was the duty of the next of kin. And again, that is a purely physical right. salvation. Yeah. 
What's the second? One? Okay, so the second one is a redemption of property. Again, very physical yeah. or non-sacrificial animals that were dedicated to the Lord, or even the redemption of the firstborn of unclean animals. You can read about that in Leviticus 27. Uh, so the idea was that a man could give an equivalent to the Lord in exchange, but the redemption price was to be a bit extra so as to uh, avoid dishonest exchanges. So in these cases, the redeemer was not a relative, but actually the owner of the property, just redeeming them back. Yeah. Uh, third, the the root here uh, can also be used to refer to the next of kin, who is the avenger of blood uh, for a murdered man. Uh, the full phrase, their avenger of blood, is almost uh, always used when it comes to this term, Numbers 35, 12, for instance. And apparently the idea is that the next of kin was to affect the payment of life for life. So uh, just like a house is repurchased or a slave is redeemed by payment, uh, so also the loss of life of a relative must be paid for by the, the equivalent life of the murderer uh, yeah. in ancient Israel. So um, the kinsman then becomes this avenger of blood. Uh, the system of execution must be distinguished from blood feuds though. So this isn't revenge. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, rather the goel is how it is the term, uh, avenger of blood. He's considered to be a guiltless executioner and... So he was not to be murdered in turn. Right. He'd avenge this family's family member's death, but he's not now viewed as a murderer. He's a just yeah. executioner. I can't remember if we did a podcast or a Q&A or I did it. I know I did it in my preaching, but this is what gets into Genesis 9, where it talks about capital punishment. Right. And, and the idea there is that when you take a life improperly, your life is forfeit, and this is now um, put into the law for Israel. But what I pointed out, I know when I taught it, was that when you killed that man, your life wasn't forfeit. Right. And so it was talking about the difference between murder versus capital punishment. Um, but what I, I like about what you just said there is that you're essentially redeeming the blood of your lost relative, um, that it was precious, and so the redemption price is— the murderers, yeah, blood, exactly. Um, boy, that think about what our nation would look like. <laughs> you know, I'm serious. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. a lot of people would be second guessing before they decide they're going to go grab their gun and just go do something stupid. Anyhow, the fourth one is a very common usage that is prominent in the Psalms and the prophets. It's that God is Israel's redeemer who will stand up for His people and vindicate them. Now there may be a hint of the father's near kinship or ownership in the use of the word, uh, but the redemption price is not usually cited, though the idea of judgment on Israel's oppressor as a ransom is included in a passage such as Isaiah 43, 1-3. So God, as it were, redeems his sons, Israel, from a bondage that is worse than slavery. Yeah. Uh, so full, very full meaning there. Uh, then the next uh, root in this word group is pada, and the basic meaning of of this Hebrew root is to achieve the transfer of ownership from one to another, but through payment uh, of an equivalent substitute. <laughs> the, um, so the development of, of this term is very important for uh, Christian theology. Actually, um, originally it had to do with the payment 
of a required sum for the transfer of ownership. And so it was a, a commercial term in that sense. Uh, Exodus and also in Leviticus 19.20 used the term to speak of the redemption of a slave girl, for instance, but actually for the purpose of marriage. Um, so there's a redeeming quality there. Uh, it's also a term used to speak of redemption of a man's life who is under the sentence of death. Uh, you're going to see this, for instance, in 1 Samuel 14, 15, when uh, actually Jonathan was redeemed by the people of Israel when rightly he should have been killed. Um, this word was given special religious significance as well by the Exodus event when God delivered Israel there from slavery in Egypt. He did so, but at the price of the slaughter of all the firstborn in Egypt, uh, and that included both man and animal. Um, and then from there, the concept is now broadened. So God not only redeemed Israel from Egypt, but then he, he delivered them from many other difficulties. Um, and you'll just see that as you trace out the history of Israel. Um, then David uses the word to speak of God, redeeming him from all his adversities. So 2 Samuel 4.9, Kings 1.29. Um, and then the finally, the term will be picked up in the Psalms to speak much of God's deliverance and redemption of life from danger. Uh, we see that most explicitly in the notion of God delivering a person from death or from Sheol. Uh, the other term you'll see is from the pit. And so the psalmists constantly talk about this in terms of their, actually their inability to deliver themselves. And so they're dependent on God's power exclusively to do this. All right. So with that, uh, we move to the next term, kaya. Uh, the basic meaning is to live or to have life, but it carries the idea of actually giving or restoring life. Uh, the majority of the texts uh, use the term, again, in that physical, temporal manner. Uh, yet there are many which give also a spiritual sense as well. You could see examples in like Deuteronomy 8.3 or Psalm 119, verse 25. But the point that we would want you to understand is that this term, or, or regarding the term, is that uh, life is seen as more than simply existing, which is really what many people in America think it is. Um, it, it's existing in relation to God. Uh, he is the giver, the sustainer, and the taker of life. And so to be separate from God in any manner is in reality death. Uh, we see this in one sense with the unbeliever, that while he yet lives, he is actually dead. Uh, eternally speaking, the unbeliever may be living, yet in it is a life that is in the lake of fire. And that I think that's a, a great little line because they are alive. Right. Because um, they've been raised to judgment, and then they face the second death. But they're alive, but they're dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is a total separation, though, of anything that is good. Yeah. Well, and that gets into that concept you know we'll talk about what does eternal life mean and right. it, it's not so much speaking of temporal or time yeah it's not saying you live forever or long time right it's not not well, that, saying that <laughs> yeah no that's true um but it's more speaking about the quality of life right it's 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 a god kind of life you now enter his quality of life uh so hell is, is the, the lack of it <laughs> yes yeah. um so just a quick summary here of, of salvation or deliverance, as the term is in the Old Testament. When you, when you consider the Old Testament, you realize that the emphasis is upon the gracious and sovereign salvation that comes only from God. And so whether you, you consider the fall 
and the promise of the seed that would come to destroy Satan or the care and salvation of Israel from Egypt and Babylon and all their oppressors. God is sovereignly working in the lives of the nation. Um, you know, so there's a constant emphasis upon the gracious nature that of salvation as well. Uh, think about how Adam severed, um, uh, suffered immediate destruction or should have um, suffered immediate destruction and he didn't. Or think about Noah and his family where they're saved and why? Well, because he found favor or grace from God. Um, Abraham, for instance, was called out of the Ur of Chaldees um, by God's sovereign, gracious choosing of him. Abraham did nothing. He's out there worshiping the moon God. He didn't even know <laughs> Yahweh exists, and yet God shows up and sovereignly plucks him and chooses him. And so um, salvation is deliverance from enemies. Um, among these enemies, of course, are death and it's fear. Uh, you got the lion's mouth in Psalm 22 that you're being snatched out of. Uh, they're saved from the battlefield, Deuteronomy 20, saved from the wicked, Psalm 50, saved from sickness, Isaiah 38, from trouble, Jeremiah 30, saved from sins, Ezekiel 36. And so there's all kinds of meanings and shades here, but in the Old Testament times, the overwhelming concept, uh, conception of God was that he was the savior from all of Israel's foes, right. both spiritually and physically. Uh, salvation is also deliverance to the Lord. So there's that direction. Uh, Yahweh has not only, not only delivered his people from that which would destroy them, but he also brought them to himself. And so his salvation was not merely a rescue from a dangerous situation, but it was also a rescue for a special, special purpose. And that purpose being that those rescued should worship and praise and glorify him uh, through lives that are dedicated to obeying him in all of life. So you'll see that in First Chronicles 16.32 or uh, Zechariah 8.13. Uh, also, there's this unique feature of the Old Testament conception of salvation uh, as compared to the pagan religions of that time. Uh, it, and, and it is the fact that salvation was understood as the prerequisite rather than simply the goal um, of, of the goal of obedience, rather. The order is well expressed by the psalmist when he says, save me so that I may observe thy testimonies in Psalm 119 verse uh, 146. So that whole Bi the whole Bible makes it very clear that the imperative of do, uh, of doing for man is based upon the indicative of having been done by God. So we are to do because what God has done, rather than do this and then God will do that for yeah, you, which yeah. is a classic works-oriented or pagan understanding. Right. Yeah. So that's the Old Testament, uh, and then very quickly because there's not a lot, but we come then to the New Testament terms for salvation. And so the first one is sozo, uh, and the basic meaning meanings for this term are save or to preserve from harm or to be rescued. Uh, you'll see that in Matthew one twenty one, Ephesians two five, and it's a very general term, but it carries on those Old Testament ideas of deliverance. And so a person is being rescued actually from a situation in which they can't rescue themselves. Uh, or soteria um, meanings here are salvation, deliverance. Uh, first of all, physically as rescue from danger, um, it's a deliverance, a preservation, or a safety. So again, that's 
picks up that Old Testament idea, uh, but also as a religious technical term um, of safety for the soul, uh, or in a spiritual sense, what we would call just salvation. And then a third way it's used is of the messianic deliverance at the end of the present age, in other words, the ultimate salvation, which is what we started this whole thing out with. Yeah. Uh, so examples would be Luke one sixty nine or Ephesians one thirteen, and so this word will normally carry with it the abstract idea of salvation rather than the actual act of salvation. Yeah, yeah. And then you have uh, finally uh, soter. Uh, which the meanings here are speaking of the agent of salvation or agent of deliverance. Um, so speaking of, of the Savior himself or the deliverer, the rescuer. Um, and so it's first used of God as the source of salvation. He's considered the Savior. Um, second is used of Jesus Christ as the agent who is sent by God to bring deliverance to man. Uh, so he'll often be called, of course, the Savior. You'll see that in Luke one forty seven, Titus one three. Um, and so let me just read a quote here from Girdleston on this. He says, the doctrine of salvation in the New Testament derives its name from a word which was ingrained in the history and language of Israel from the period of the deliverance of the people out of Egypt up to the time of their restoration from captivity. The word yasa, uh, to save, which generally answers to the Greek sozo, has given a name not only to Joshua, but to Jesus who should save his people from their sins. The Messiah was to be the embodiment of the divine help and salvation. All right, so let's bring a basic conclusion then to these terms, because that's all there are. Um, there are two basic points of emphasis with the terms. Uh, sozo, sozo, rather, uh, tended toward a temporal emphasis, while soter tends more toward a spiritual deliverance. However, even these lines are not consistent and even quite blurred. However, just as in the Old Testament salvation was holy of God, the same is true of the new. Um, and at the very center of this work of salvation is a person work of Jesus Christ. So when we consider salvation, what we will find is that the New Testament teaches that salvation is something far more holistic than we generally understand. That's what we'd want you to kind of take away with this one is there's a lot more going on than just I go to heaven or something like that. Uh, God saves not merely the soul, but the body as well. It's not merely man who is saved, but even all of creation, which is currently groaning under the presence of sin. And you can see that in like Romans 8.22. Uh, salvation is also not merely a dot in time. There wasn't this point in time where you got saved, but it's a continuum where God is effectively working out salvation to the utmost. Uh, this makes salvation effectively eschatological in nature. It's looking to the end. Um, there, there is this new day coming, and with it, a new heavens and earth. And it is at that time that the fullness of salvation will have been realized. And if we can also communicate that through this series, I think it'll help a lot of people get more excited because they could sort of get the idea, okay, I've trusted in Jesus, I guess I'm saved, which is bad thinking, but that's how many do. But they don't understand that there's something far bigger than that going on, and that you're just a tiny, tiny part. It's Since we make salvation all about ourselves, right? right. Um, then 
okay, we're saved. But it's like, no, no, no. You know, everything that causes us ache, everything that causes creation to groan, everything is ultimately going to be redeemed and, and saved and delivered by God. And, and we're part of that. And that's exciting. Yeah. And then I would also add, because uh, there are some people who struggle sometimes because they don't remember an experience or a moment they had when they, quote, got saved. Yeah. And, but biblically, that it, it's not really what matters. I mean, no. in, in one sense, that's true, but in another sense, salvation's far bigger, far more rich, and it's something that's happening now and something that will finally happen in an age to come. Yeah, that's a good point. So, so that's a lexical data. Uh, of course, we've not even touched the doctrine itself, um, but hopefully just from beginning to look at some of these terms here, it's already becoming clear that salvation, again, as we've been saying, is far more rich and nuanced than we typically understand it. And so as we seek to develop this doctrine, we'll hopefully be able to bring that out a little bit. Uh, but that's sufficient for now. Um, and so next time we'll jump into the idea of atonement. Uh, but until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation, let us know what you think about the doctrine of salvation. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend. Mm-hmm.